Turn with me, if you would, to the book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible, and we're going to look at the beginning of chapter 20. This morning, or excuse me, this evening, we're going to look at the first three verses of chapter 20 as we begin now a study of the Ten Commandments. We have come up till this point to see the redemption of the people of Israel out of slavery and bondage in Egypt. They have traversed through the wilderness and come to Mount Sinai. They are prepared now to hear from the Lord their God. And God now gives to them the great ten words, the ten commandments. And so over the next ten sermons in this series, we'll be looking each one week at a commandment. This week we'll look at the first commandment. Next week we'll look at the second commandment. And the week after that at the third. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely sufficient. The word of the Lord is completely authoritative. And the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. Exodus chapter 20, beginning at verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. O Lord, you are indeed the only true living God. Lord, we pray that by your word this evening, you would encourage us and convict us not to have any other gods before you that we would put down all the idols of our making, and we would serve you alone. For you alone, O Lord, have redeemed us. You alone have done this mighty work. And so we ask that you would bless us this evening with a focus upon you. This we ask in the precious name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. It's a habit that I still employ, but it was much more of use to me back long ago in my days as an attorney. When I would go on vacation, I had to change my voicemail. Because if I didn't, people would call, and even though I was on vacation, and even if my voicemail said I was on vacation, and when I was returning, I would get messages such as, can you look at this document that I've emailed to you? Can you call me back later today? And what I realized is, which maybe you already know, both whether you have business voicemail or even the voicemail on your phone, there is usually a button you can press to skip the message, to just go right to leaving a message. So no one was ever listening to find out I was on vacation. And so I began all of my voicemails on vacation with, Please take a moment to listen to this message. This is Fred Greco. I'm not in the office this week. If you leave me a message, I probably won't get back to you till next week. Just to put people on alert. Now, I think that's a sense of what we need to have in our minds as we come this evening to the Ten Commandments. We come to perhaps one of the most familiar sections of the Bible. 
We believe we know them. For many of us, we have memorized them and could recite them from memory. And so, we can be tempted as we come to this text, not really to listen to the message. Not really to think there's anything new here. But I want to ask you this evening, please take a moment to listen to this message. Because there is much that we can learn from the Ten Commandments. This is an important study for us, not just because God's law is ignored in the world today. That is certainly true. We could pull out a newspaper or a website and show all of the various ways in which many of the Ten Commandments are being broken blatantly by people in our culture and our society. But that's not primarily why I want us to study these commandments. Instead, the Ten Commandments tell us who our God is. They are a picture of His nature and character because they come from God. We should not look at the Ten Commandments as a set of rules that we are to follow. No, God is giving us His nature, what pleases Him, what He delights in. And that's the perspective that I would like us to have. We're not going to try and be exhaustive. <clears throat> I will not have this be an exposition of the larger catechism's study of the Ten Commandments. I commend that to you. If you ever think that you could possibly keep one of the commandments for even a short period of time, read that exposition. And all of the various sins that are subsumed under each commandment. So we're not going to try and exhaustively list every aspect of every commandment. But we will try and be practical to give us a guideline as to how we are to live, because that is what God's law is for the believer. It is a rule of life. So this evening, as we take on the first commandment, the very first thing that I would like us to see is the context of the commandment. How does this commandment come to us? I think this is important if we are to understand at least how Israel heard the commandment, and I think also how we should hear it as well. And so the very first aspect of the context of this commandment is its historical context. And that is that this commandment is a part of the fulfillment of God's promise. This commandment tells us that God is true, that God keeps his word. He told Moses that he was going to redeem his people and that they would come to this mountain and then they would worship him. And that is exactly what he has brought about. God is true to his word. Is that the God that you know and serve? I fear that too often we treat God as a hope or a shot in the dark, or when everything else around us fails and we don't know what else to do, we hope God will come through. But the truth of the scriptures tells us that God is a God of his promise and he keeps his promises and we can rely on them more than we could rely on anything else. If I can put it to you this way, there is a greater possibility of gravity failing and you hitting the ceiling than God not keeping his promise. The surest thing you could possibly think of is nothing compared to the promise of God. And so as we imagine the Israelites coming out 
of Egypt, out of a land of bondage, but not just a land of bondage, a land filled with false gods. But more than that, false gods who have brought them pain and suffering. False gods who would not hear their cry. You could just imagine that these Israelites who are around the mountain would have very likely worked to build temples to false gods at the orders of their masters. God has fulfilled His promise to them. And this commandment, these ten commandments, lets us know that God is in relationship with His people. One of the, the great blessings that has come out of Bible study in the last century is the understanding of how ancient Near East treaties were formed between greater kings and lesser kings. And we see this in the way that God enters into a treaty, if you will, a relationship with His people. We see this in the way that the commandments are written on tables of stone and placed then in the ark to be carried with the people of Israel. Those commandments are done in that fashion, not because Moses lacked parchment to write them down. No, these commandments were written by the finger of God on tablets of stone to show the permanence of them. And the Israelites carried them with them in order so that they might remember that God was their God. That God was in covenant with them. Again, these commandments are not a series of rules. They are the terms of the relationship between God and His people. And if we understand this, then we will see just how foolish it is to say, I don't want to study the Ten Commandments. I don't care, care about this at all. I just want to know God. Because, of course, the way that we know God is through His Word. The way that we know God is through His character as revealed. Now, there's not just an historical context to this commandment. There is also a completeness to it. Notice verse 1. God spoke all these words. God spoke this and no more, Moses tells us in Deuteronomy chapter 4. There is a fulfillment of what God needs us to know in these words. They are majestic and expansive. You know, some time ago there was a relatively famous movie starring Tom Hanks. And he was sitting on a bench playing a character called Forrest Gump. And he would always end the scene by saying, and that's all I've got to say about that. And when he did that, it was because he had chosen an arbitrary breaking point. There was still more to say, but just he finished apart. That's not what God's doing here. God has said all these words because that's all there is to say on this subject, period. There is no other commandment to be added. We don't need to worry about an 11th commandment. We don't need to worry about whether there are too many. This is a, there is a completeness to the commandments. The number 10 itself speaks to completeness. It is a number of completeness. And the commandments were written on both sides of the tablets. I think often we view the Ten Commandments as being two tables with five on one table and five on the other. But that really is not the case. 
Really, there were two copies of the law, one for each party, written on both sides of the tablet. Very likely, four on one side as pertaining to God, and the last six on the other side as pertaining to man. And these commandments are repeated in Scripture, but they are never supplemented. God repeats these same commandments in Deuteronomy chapter 5 and in Matthew 22, but there's nothing added to them. They are complete. The third thing about our context that I want us to remember, not only for tonight, but for each of our expositions on this, is that the proper interpretation of each commandment takes into account both the positive and the negative. We need to see the breadth of God's law. So when God says, do not lie, he is also saying, tell the truth. When God says, do not steal, he is also saying, work and be generous. This is what he is doing. The Negative and the positive are included in each commandment, and we will see each of these aspects in each commandment. We need to also understand the scope of the law. That the law is much broader than these summaries. These ten words are summaries of the command. And as I mentioned to you earlier, you can look at the Westminster Larger Catechism and see the breadth of the law, because our tendency is to limit the law. We know this is true. Jesus points this out in the Gospels. You shall not murder becomes do not hit someone in the head with an axe. And as long as you don't do that, you're fine. But Jesus tells us that's not what this commandment means. It means don't murder someone in your heart. Don't curse someone. It goes beyond your hands to your words, to your mind. We have to understand that as we look at these commands. I also want to remind you that far too often we look at the Ten Commandments so that we can apply them to others. To explain to others how they are breaking God's law. To tell others what they are doing wrong. And what we must do is we must apply these commandments to ourselves. They must reach our heart. They must change our life. And if we do that, these commands are liberating. They give us freedom before the Lord our God. That's the context of this commandment we see. The second thing that I want us to see this evening is the God of the commandment. We begin... In verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now it should not surprise us that God begins with himself. He doesn't begin with Egypt. He doesn't begin with Israel. He doesn't begin with the land that he is to give them. No, he begins with himself. I am. He is self-sufficient. He is who he is. He has the authority to speak these commands because of who he is. The creator of all things. The sustainer of the universe. The redeemer of his people. It's important for us to see that these commands come from God. 
They are not abstract truths. They are the very words of God. And when God declares these commands, they are universal. Because God is the only true God. He is the God of all people, whether they worship Him rightly or not. He has a universal claim on each man, woman, and child in the world. He is declaring the law for everyone. It doesn't matter whether you don't think it applies to you. Have you ever tried, if you perchance were going a few miles over the speed limit on the highway, and a policeman pulls you over and says, do you know you were going seven miles over the speed limit? Have you ever tried to look at him and say, but officer, I don't recognize that authority. I don't think the law applies to me. No, I didn't pass that law. I didn't consent to that law. I don't agree with that law. I think the speed limit should be 10 miles an hour higher. So technically, officer, I'm three miles under my limit. See what that gets you. It's probably likely to get you not only a ticket, but a trip downtown. You can't just declare it doesn't apply to you. And yet we have people all over the world declaring that God's law doesn't apply to them. That doesn't make it any more true. Remember the defeat that God brought upon the idols of Egypt. God has already shown us that he is the powerful God. All the gods of Egypt were of no power and authority against him. They were helpless before him. As Isaiah tells us, they were idols who cannot speak, who cannot hear, who cannot see. So when God declares this law, it is his universal right. He also declares his sovereignty over our lives. It's not just I am, it is I am the Lord. The sovereign one. He is sovereign over our lives. And brothers and sisters, that means every aspect of our lives. It doesn't mean just at church. It doesn't mean just with Bible reading. No. It means at work. It means at school. It means at home. In your neighborhood. On the internet. On the phone, everywhere you go, God is your sovereign Lord. There is no place in the world that you can go to escape the authority of God. As one famous Dutch minister put it, there is not one molecule in the world over which Jesus does not say, mine. That's true. And that's what God's saying here. We see an aspect of this in an odd place in Leviticus. If you've ever wondered why books like Leviticus are in the Bible, if you've ever in your annual daily Bible reading come to the book of Leviticus and been slowed down through all of the lengthy laws about clothing and beards and food and etc., and you wonder, why is this even in the Bible? Here's at least one incredible reason. Leviticus chapter 19 contains a series of laws. It's, it's actually kind of a grab bag. It's about offerings. It's about neighbors. It's about keeping God's statutes. It's about slaves. It's about planting food. It's about the Sabbath. There are a number of laws in this. But one thing that you will notice is that over and over and over again, you will see this phrase. 
I am the Lord your God. We see it in verse 3. We see it in verse 4. Again in verse 10. Again in verse 12 and 14 and 16 and 18 and 25 and 28 and 30. You get the picture. In every single aspect of life, over a multitude of areas, God is declaring, I am the Lord. He is sovereign over His people. God also reminds us that He is powerful. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. He was able to deliver because of His mighty arm. But more than that, God is also relational with us. It is not just, I am the Lord. Do you see what follows? I am the Lord, your God. God is highlighting the relationship that He has with us. He uses that covenantal name, Yahweh, the Lord. And, and this shouldn't surprise us, because what we have here before us is the culmination of the covenantal act. There is a covenantal promise being delivered on here right before us. And the Lord does something very interesting here that I think we miss with our modern translation. If we were to open up the old authorized version, we would read, I am the Lord, thy God. Now, if you recall the authorized version, there are two words for the second person pronoun. There is you, which is plural, and thee or thy, which is singular. Now, why is that important? Because the you here in our text, your God, is singular. Now, do you see the importance of this? God is speaking these words to all of the people of Israel, but he's not speaking to them as a crowd. He's speaking to each of them as individuals. He says, I am your God. I'm not just a God. I'm not just the people's God. I am your God. I am in relationship with you. This is the kind of affection that we see of parents with their children. And we see that God here himself speaks and writes these words. Now, this also is significant because normally God speaks through prophets, through mediators. And this is one of the rare occasions in which he does not. Other occasions would be the baptism of our Lord Jesus Christ or the transfiguration. God himself is speaking to his people. He doesn't need Moses as a mediator between them. Now, just think about in your family. Parents, have you ever said to one of your children, would you go tell your brother to do such and such? Right? It's just something that's put away your shoes. Empty the dishwasher. It's something that you want done, but it's not of, of crucial importance. You can use it intermediary. But if there's something crucially important, what do you do? You call them yourself. You speak to them directly, personally. That's what God's doing here. He's speaking directly to his people, not through a mediator. And then lastly, we see that God is not only relational, but he is also the deliverer. 
I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. <coughs> we do not need to work ourselves into a position in which God will love us and show us grace. Rather, God shows us His grace and brings us into relationship with Him, and then He reveals His law to us so that we might have a guide to live by, so that we might know His character. This is the God of the commandment. The third and final thing that I want us to see this evening is the commandment itself. And as I mentioned earlier, we need to look at this both in terms of its negative application and its positive application. Let's start with the negative. In verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. Do you see how groundbreaking this is? It's completely contrary to Israel's experience. All they had known for hundreds of years in Egypt was idolatry, was a multiplicity of gods. They were under a pharaoh who considered himself a god. And now here God sweeps away all of that false baggage and he says, there are no other gods but me. Forget all of that. Israel is being called to change their ways, to change their way of thinking. Much like Abraham, when he was called out of Ur to leave behind the worship of his ancestors, of the sun and the moon and the stars. God is telling his people to not just hear his commandments, but to understand that everything has changed. That they must look at the world in a completely different way. A world through the prism of God as the only true God. Now, like Israel with Egypt, we might be tempted to see this commandment as a way to get back at unbelievers. To tell them how wrong they are. That they have false gods all the time. But again, the question is, do we apply that to our own hearts? Now, I don't know about you. I haven't, in all of the time that I have lived in a home, set up a totem pole or some sort of physical idol in my backyard. I've never been tempted to do that. But I have been tempted to worship my family or my bank account or my reputation. I need to apply this word to myself, that I can have no other God but God. Now, there is no option here for the believer. The way that God says this is the strongest possible way that he can do this in Hebrew. There are at least three ways that you can express a negative in the Hebrew language. And this is the strongest possible way. There is no compromise that's permissible. If you'll forgive the bad grammar, God is saying, ain't no way, no how, never going to be an opportunity for there to ever be any God but me. The Israelites wouldn't say to themselves, did you understand what he was saying? Is that like no God's on Tuesday, but him? Or is it no God's at home, but him? But at work, it's okay? No, it's none ever. And that's because 
having other gods is so displeasing to the Lord. You know this whether you are younger now or when you were younger. You knew when your parents gave you the strongest possible command. There were things that they would tell you to do that you knew it would be good if you followed along quickly. But there's a little bit of leeway in there. And then there are other times when you're given a command where you better jump out of your seat and get on that right away. Because it's important. That's what God's giving here. But the problem is that this seems so simple to us. It seems like so easy to keep. But after all, aren't we surrounded by gods in our culture? People worship all sorts of things. And we are tempted to be drawn into it. To be drawn away from the Lord and to worship other things. Now, we also must understand that this does not apply only to other distasteful gods. So, in the days of the Bible, it would have been very easy to apply this command to the false god Moloch. Moloch was not an easy god to serve. The way that you served Moloch was you served up your living child to be burnt alive to Moloch. But serving Baal was a bit different because Baal was a goddess and a god of fertility. And so you could serve Baal actually through pleasure, through cultish prostitutes. Serving Baal was much more enjoyable than serving Moloch. But what God is saying, there are no other gods before me. Whether it's easy or hard, whether it's pleasant or difficult, None, none but me. But then we also see that there is a positive aspect to this command. And we see this in two aspects. In verse 2, I am the Lord, your God. And then we see it in the phrase in verse 3, no other gods before me. And so what God is not just doing is preventing false worship. He is commanding the worship of God. So, there's no out for the atheist. There's no out for the agnostic. You know what an agnostic is? It's an atheist that doesn't have the courage of his convictions. He hides it under, I don't know, or I'm not sure. As if somehow the moon just appeared in the sky, and gravity just happened to exist, and randomly everything came together as if you took a Lego set and threw it up in the air, and when it came down, it was the Millennium Falcon. It's insane. And what God is doing here is he is commanding our worship of him. Monotheism. No other gods before me. Now, do you understand what that little phrase means? Because God is all-knowing and all-seeing. What is before him? Everything. There is no place that you can go where God is not. Look at the 139th Psalm. Whether it's in heaven or on earth or in the sea or under the earth or in hell itself, you cannot get out from under before God. And so this command comes to us no matter where we are, no matter what culture, what place, what time. And remember that this commandment is not just describing sins that are to be avoided. 
It's describing the duty that we are required to exercise. It is not enough to say, well, I don't worship idols. The question that I ask is, but are you actively worshiping the Lord your God? Because that's what he commands. It's positive. And I want to warn you against another tendency that I think we have. Often we look for the easiest way to obey this command. We do this, after all, with all of the commandments. We try to find the easiest possible way that we can just barely keep the commandment. And that is not what this command is calling us to. It is calling us to wholehearted, whole-minded, whole-soul devotion to God. Holding nothing back. Not one area of your life. No compartmentalizing. Everything is open before God and we serve Him. And it also shows the true human life. Because this command reflects God's character. And because we are made in God's image, we are only truly human when we obey this command. When we disobey this command, we become more like beasts than men. Because we were meant to worship God. We were created to worship and serve Him. And if we want to be truly and ultimately human, we are to obey this command. This command must affect our lives. This command is not meant to be a cross-stitch framed hanging in your kitchen. It is meant to be a part of every aspect of your life. It is practical, not just theological. And what that means is it requires total surrender. It requires total trust in the Lord our God. There's a negative aspect to this command. There's a positive aspect to this command. And then I want us to understand that there is a New Testament fulfillment of this command. It is fulfilled in our Lord Jesus Christ. What is the supreme accomplishment of the new covenant instituted by Christ with his blood? It is to write the law of God on our hearts. That's what Jeremiah chapter 31 says. That's what Hebrews chapter 8 says. Jesus has made it so the law is written on our hearts. And because of Jesus and what he has done, we have the ability to keep this command. Not perfectly. The theologian will tell you that there are four estates of man. That Adam was born able not to sin. He was born in innocence. But after the fall, mankind is only able to sin. He is unable not to sin. All he does is sin. But when man is redeemed by Jesus Christ, he then becomes able to obey God. Able once again not to sin. And that's because of what Jesus has done. It's not something inherent in you. It's because Jesus has changed you and empowered you and given you his spirit. I also want you to remember that Jesus tells us that this commandment 
is what all the other nine hang upon. If we don't have this commandment, I dare say the other nine don't matter at all. Jesus tells us the first and great commandment is what? To love the Lord your God with all your mind, all your strength, and all your soul. This is the first and great commandment. Brothers and sisters, our Lord Jesus Christ leads us to the law of God. And the law of God points back to Christ. When we study God's law, we are led to Christ. When we study the commandment in its breadth and its depth, in the negative and in the positive, one thing that we are struck with is that we cannot keep it. And that reminds us that we need a Savior. That we are never for a day able in ourselves to please God. It is only because of the work of our Lord Jesus Christ that we have this relationship with the Lord and that we are able by any means and in any respect to keep God's law. And that is just as true of this first commandment as it is of all the others. I trust that this week as you go about your duties, that you will go about them with a fresh perspective knowing that everything you do is before God. And everything that you do is to serve God. And everything that you do is for the glory of God. The first and great commandment is, I am the Lord your God, and you shall have no other gods before me. May the Lord give us the grace we need to follow His Word and to seek after Him. Let's pray.